and welcome to the Steam Power Podcast. Downtown Southern Maryland, time to da 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 Um, Steam Power Podcast episode number uh, seventy-one for August fifteenth or sixteenth, something like that. 2015, and uh, it's time to get steamy. So I'm just going to run through the uh, stories because, frankly, this is the second time I'm doing this. So if you had watched earlier, uh, Lisa was here, but she didn't feel like doing it twice, so I'm the best you got. <clears throat> so let's hit into some stories. You're going to notice the issue that is, before we really jump in, uh, apparently YouTube has switched over to... A new it used to do you could do basically a Google Hangout to do the video, and it was simple and it worked. Uh, apparently, they've killed that, and now you have to use a third-party piece of software that you install. And um, apparently, I didn't get the audio to uh, get transmitted over the interwebs, and that's why we're doing a second, um, probably going to be a very short episode. But as I explained earlier. Um, we're getting ready to go back to school, so we get back into a routine, and uh, hopefully things will uh, be better. Uh, anyway, um, all right, so first story comes to us from Digital Trends. Uh, why 3D food printing is more than just a novelty, it's the future of food. So uh, obviously there's a little bit of eye candy in here because it's actually literally sugar candy, um, all printed out with a 3D printer. And uh, there's a couple other, there's like a chocolate printer. Um, let's get to the real good stuff. There's a nice little artwork here with some sugar work. Um, but then there is the real deal. So the issue is, of course, every year um, more and more people are on this planet. And that means more mouths to feed. And we're looking at ways to, you know, unfortunately, um, not everyone uh, through conventional farming techniques can be fed. Um, at least we don't think we can, uh, unless we have some sort of real breakthrough in farming and getting yields up in farming. So anyway, um, the idea is the future of food, at least for uh, maybe, you know, a large majority of the of the world uh, could be, and um, actually, it's, to me, actually looks more appetizing. I'd rather have some of this stuff than be uh, what we have today. Um, is basically it looks it's like little um, protein packs, right? Um, and then you put them in your little three D printer, and instead of extruding out plastic, you extrude out uh, different um, ingredients, and you create your food on the fly. So I think, you know, that's interesting because on one hand, this to me screams very much of a um, convenience thing for, you know, the first world people, you know, especially here in America, we're always rushing. Uh, you know, we are the purveyors of fast food. Um, and this could be a way to, I don't know if would completely replace, but maybe augment, you know, for your date, for your meals, most of your meals, say breakfast, lunch, you have something 3D printed, and then you have a more traditional sit down, catch up the family dinner. Um, but anyway, the long story short is we got to figure out different ways to food, uh, feed, uh, feed people, 
Um, and 3D printing might be just the way. There's, you know, they're talking about, you know, not just, um, you know, there's the certainly the artistic slash, uh, you know, kind of coolness factor. Uh, and then there's also just the, the practical applications of um, how do you feed so many people. And the story kind of um, touches on both. So if you want to read it again, we'll have show notes, uh, links to all the cool stuff. Uh, let's see here. Intelligent Sensor informs you a diaper change is needed via SMS. Um, this is from uh, Science Daily, and it is from uh, discussing a uh, some work that a company uh, called Institute of Bioengineering and Nanotechnology um, has invented a uh, complete system, not just the sensor, it looks like, um, that can be embedded into a, uh, a diaper. In this case, it's, it's geared towards um, the elderly versus newborns um, and would give caregivers a, a message when um, they detected uh, the diaper had become soiled. Uh, so I get it. There's a lot of you guys. There's a lot of medical um, uh, value in this. Um, if you sit in your uh, in your uh, excrement too long, you can develop rashes and infections. So being able to know when, uh, without having to really uh, check, uh, is a key thing. Um, the interesting thing, though, about the story is I could have sworn I've seen this kind of stuff before because I can't imagine that you know it's just it's some sort of liquid sensor uh, detection sensor that then just you know little microcontroller or whatever um, you know sends out a message. So my point in the story is they talk they go down here and they talk about. Uh, they've done some clinical validations, and it says Sears' technological and commercialization impact. 341 active patents and patent applications, eight spin-off companies. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's a lot of patents for something that I am pretty sure has prior art. And if not prior art, is based on some pretty simple technology. Um, so my curiosity is, you know... Are they really looking to patent this? Because, you know, here, let's face it, the patents or something like this means prices go up, um, not down. So, you know, if you patent something like this, then basically you're going to have see, it's not going to be 20 years until we actually see it because people are going to wait till the patents expire and then uh, hook it up. So I hope, I hope I'm misreading, misunderstanding, you know, how a basically a, a smart diaper uh, is patentable when there's been so many, you know, think about all the liquid sensors you have just for like in your basement for when, um, you know, say your sub pump backs up or whatever. So I'm not sure exactly what they're patenting. Uh, you know, yes, there's breakthroughs in maybe making sensors more pliable, thinner, cheaper, whatever, but, uh, man... Um, I'm all about, you know, making money and capitalism off your ideas, but this is, when I say 341 patents, yeah, I can see one, two, but 341 patents just, it screams like something's amiss here. Anyway, um, there you go. So, you know, as we all get older, we have look forward to uh, uh, 
Uh, smart divers. I guess that's cool. Uh, next story. As it gets a little bit darker here, I'm going to try to roll out so I forgot to turn the lights on. Uh, Tetris can block cravings, a new study reveals. Um, so basically a bunch of researchers at the University of Plymouth um, took people that have, um, I guess, uh, more than just, I guess, cravings or are quite, um, you know, if these are addictions or not. But the idea was they played Tetris, and they specifically called out Tetris, which they don't talk about, you know, what it is about Tetris. They just, it's kind of means like, well, what did any kind of visual, intense, you know, thinking video game work? Um, but for whatever reason, they, the focus is on, on Tetris. And the idea was, you know, by, by t- basically distracting yourself, you, um, they, you know, they've clinically proven that um, it can weaken your cravings for things. They've done everything from drugs, food, uh, you know, I'll talk about later, coffee, alcohol, um, and they do activities, so things like sex and sleeping, um, which I guess makes sense because if you're playing a video game, you're probably not sleeping. If you're playing a video game, you're probably, well, that could be changing. But right now, you're probably not having sex. Well, not very, anyway. Um, so there's that. So anyway, uh, again, this, this story is coming from the University of uh, Plymouth, um, and they go in and talk a lot about that um, you know they're they're seeing things like fifty to seventy percent uh, reductions in the cravings. Now they're kind of relying on um, people kind of being honest. It seems like to me, um, you know, they're say every every few hours they got a text message that said, you know, what are you know, asking? What is their craving feeling? Uh, they responded, so you know it wasn't kind of like they were measuring craving levels. It was just people self-reporting. So, uh, but anyway. Um, Big point of the story is, uh, we know we we've seen people use video games or virtual reality um, to overcome phobias like fear of heights. I've seen research on that. So you know this is just another level. Of, okay, we've done phobias. What about addictions? And can you use video games uh, or video game like technology to help uh, get people get over that? And apparently, there's something there. Um, with that, I am definitely uh, going to go. Uh, download Tetris and uh, see if that helps my cravings uh, for drinking water. I don't know. Can it do the other way? Can it encourage behaviors too? That's another question I have. Anyway, pretty cool. Uh, next story cardiorespiratory fitness, which I guess means like, you know, walking, jogging. Uh, linked to thinner gray matter and better math skills in kids. So, kind of, we've all heard, you know, the more active you are, you know, and I've got the anecdotal of, you know, I've experienced of, yeah, when I work out, kind of get more motivated, get more pumped, I uh, want to do more work, um, you know, cognitive work, thinking kind of stuff. I'm, I'm do, I do better at writing, doing better at my projects. So anyway, what they found is that um, when you do work out, uh, you thin the gray matter that makes up the outer uh, layer of brain cells in your cerebrum. Uh, and that the thinner that layer is, apparently, um, is associated with better mathematics uh, performance. So they talk about that it's not a 
the study hasn't proven that there's a it's a um, causation, but they do see the correlation that um, exercise, cardiorespiratory exercise, uh, is appearing to contribute to the gray matter thinning. Um, whether it's like you know, is, is there a second or third level of um, interaction going on there? Um, but when we see that thinning of the, the that those brain cells on the cerebrum. Um, we also see better math skills. So that's cool. Um, and this one is coming from the uh, University of Illinois up in uh, Urbana-Champaign. Uh, Chapon. Um, and the other thing was, it, so it, it focused on younger kids, like 9, 10-year-olds. Um, so I'm curious, you know, is this, this that same... Um, does the science hold up for adults? Um... Does it also have any effect on, you know, math is a very, uh, I guess it's, it's a left brain side, yeah, very logical. Does, is there a way to show that um, it also impacts, you know, the more creative aspects of intelligence? Uh, but, cool story. Uh, all right, next up comes to us from Industry Tap. Shrimp exoskeletons may aid in development of advanced composites. So, um, you know, little shrimp and other little sea creatures that live down deep in the ocean have to survive great pressures, and a lot of them uh, live near um, hydrothermal vents where the, you know, uh, lava and heat from the Earth's core is escaping into uh, the ocean. Um, and yet, these little creatures, you know, they, they not only survive, they're thriving. Um, and so there's some, uh, researchers out of, um, uh, Purdue University, uh, doing a little research on, uh, this fact and we're looking at not just the physical, um, the physical arrangements of the shells, but also the, their, their chemical, uh, and molecular behaviors, and they're finding that the, you know, there's potential ways that we can mimic this technology, uh, materials and be able to uh, design new materials. Um, you know, they talk about synthetic armor capable, quote unquote, withstanding environmental extremes. So, in other words, if you think, um, you know, going to the moon or going out in space, going to planets that are hot or going uh, just space travel in general, could these materials be used to make spacesuits, you know, you know skins for air, uh, spacecraft? Um, and we didn't have to go any further than down into our oceans to to maybe uh, find some of these creatures and, and look at their, um, their, their chemistry and their, you know, uh, physical design. Um, that's cool. I think in, anytime we go, we can go back and look at nature to see what nature's already mastered, um, you know, is, and then incorporate that into, um, synthetic materials or, or, or how we, uh, processes or, or designs that we do um, always seems like it kind of works out pretty good. So this is just another one of those stories. Uh, guess going to wrap it up with Rosetta and Filet. Uh, I'll get one more after this. Uh, so we all know about the uh, Rosetta and Filet um, lander that landed on a comet. Um, the big story this time is, you know, yes, we had some issues um, with the lander part. Uh, we landed, uh, we bounced a couple times, uh, ended up in perhaps not an ideal, um, 
positioned to be able to broadcast uh, and, and collect sunlight. Uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, we you know we got contact with Filet, then we lost it again, then we gained it, then we lost it. Um, but in the few short times that we were able to talk to it, it did send us some data. And apparently the big story is, uh, yes, we have found uh, organic compounds on Comet, at least um, Comet 67P, Chermyov Gershmanko, which I always butchered that name. Um, so anyway, uh, they, they have found what appears to be complex light-absorbing organic molecules, a fundamental discovery, which basically means for us is that potentially the building blocks of life, um, at least in our solar system, and then you can you know, extrapolate out from there, uh, seems perhaps maybe it's more abundant than we thought, and therefore the potential for life um, exists uh, is, is greater than we would have thought otherwise. So that's pretty cool. Um, so obviously now the next thing is, okay, we've learned a lot about how to land on a comet through this guy, uh, through this mission. Um, maybe we build another couple landers, find another couple comets, and do we, uh, maybe we find out that, you know, if we find the same kind of organic compounds on other comets, then, you know, that just helps build the case that, okay, yeah, really, you know, at least the building blocks, we're not saying life, we're saying organic compounds, which are a building block, a necessary requirement for at least life as we know it, um, maybe more abundant and, and more, um, what's the word, uh, can survive in more extremes than we, you know, kind of previously thought, you know, we thought maybe, you know, Earth is just, it's in the Goldilocks zone, it's in the special place, uh, life could only have been here, um, but maybe, 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 that's not the case. Um, and this just is a little bit more that scientific evidence that helps build the case um, and our theories um, on uh, really how does life uh, get started and um, it's maybe a step closer. All right. We're going to come back down to Earth for the last story here, get a little bit more practical, get a little bit more engineering. Um, so this comes to us from the folks up in uh, Portland. Um, I'm assuming Portland, Oregon, but I will, be, I will admit I could be wrong. Uh, In-pipe hydropower, electric generators in water pipeline infrastructure. So... <clears throat> We all know about big old hydro dams uh, where, you know, water falls over, um, you know, up like um, in New York, um, where we have, um, you know, just a ton of water uh, falling through, and we take that and we put a little, um, some, uh, um, not generators, what am I thinking of? Um, well, eventually there's generators. Um, but basically we harness, uh, the power of, you know, gravity is pushing the water, it's, the water is falling and, um, we can take that moving energy, convert it, uh, into electrical energy. Um, and that is what a, a company called Lucid Energy is working on. Uh, and looks like they're actually installing. Again, there's a, a 
basically a deal was made up in the, between the Portland Water Bureau, uh, Portland General Electric, and some local communities to, uh, as again, because, you know, let's face it, a lot of the infrastructure in the United States is World War II vintage, um, and uh, kind of needs to be replaced anyway. So what we're doing is we're taking out the, the water pipes that connect people that are on, like, city mains. So, yeah, you know, if you're out on living off a well, um, not really applicable, at least from the context of the story. But you take these big old 42-inch pipes, you put a little turbine, that was the word I was thinking of, uh, turbine in there, which, um, as the water feeds through, uh, gravity pushes the water through, uh, spins, and uh, it's connected to a little generator, which then takes that energy and converts it into electrical so, um, anyway, this particular project, which they don't, I wish they had mentioned, like, you know, how many linear feet of pipe are they putting in, um, so kind of get an idea of, like, what's the scope, is this, like, the entire, the entire city, is it just a community, um, but anyway, they're, uh, these, these different parties I mentioned earlier have signed a 20-year deal, um, that will generate what is estimated to be enough electrical power to power more than 150 homes, um, which should um, save the equivalent of $2 million in energy costs uh, had it been um, produced or they powered off the grid using more conventional uh, power sources or energy sources. So, um, cool. I mean, it's neat because, yeah, I mean, think about it. We've already got the water going through the pipes. People need water. Um, gravity is doing a lot to help us push that water through. So if we can just kind of tap into it and, um, get some additional benefit in terms of, okay, now we get a little bit of electricity too. Uh, and yeah, if it is, depending on again, how, how much pipe we're laying, taking 150 homes off the grid or the equivalent of taking them off, I'm sure they they would still be hooked up to the grid. Um, but basically you're reducing that demand, um, you can, or at least augment it. That's cool. That's good. Um, that means, you know, the grid's a little less stressed, uh, especially at peak. So, anyway, uh, uh, kudos to the folks up at Lucid Energy and then folks up in Portland, uh, you know, for having the, the uh, foresight and the uh, engineering prowess to put this together. And uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, like I said, you know, Especially in, in major urban areas, I know in Baltimore it's it's really bad. Um, you know, water, you, you know, pipelines and pipes and all that don't last forever. And um, if you're going to replace it anyway, spend just a little bit extra money uh, and have uh, a little extra benefit. Uh, that's pretty cool. And there's the yeah, there's like, there's some really good pictures of the uh, the turbines. And you can kind of get a spent sense of for the scale of how big these pipes are. We're talking—I mean, we're talking the big, the you know, the mains, the water mains. Um, when we recorded this earlier, we were talking about would this be something potentially? Could you have it at your house? Um, and you know, obviously, you don't have a 42-inch pipe coming into your house. Um, much, much, much smaller—just a few inches. Um, probably wouldn't be effective, as far as I know. Um, but I could be wrong, but, um, but again, it's like one of those things where you don't have to, it doesn't have, there's not a one size fits all solution. Um, you know, yeah. So you, you know, 
take most houses, put them on solar. Um, and this is just another way to help, again, reduce the load just a little bit. Uh, and we all do a little bit of our part, and then we can uh, at least, um, you know, if we're, obviously we're, we want to get to the point where we're completely renewable uh, for our electric grid, but, you know, in the, in the path to get there, anything we can do just to lighten the load as we go is certainly cool. And I guess, you know, part of me thinks, okay, that's a backup potentially, you know, if the traditional grid goes down, um, if this is a more localized and you can turn this into kind of like a, um, something like a switch gear where you can kind of, um, you know, throw this over, uh, as a backup. That's pretty cool too. Anyway, that's the stories. Gosh, the internet is really slow today. It's really bad. So anyway, um, fingers crossed. Um, uh, trying to see, so we had a few live viewers or at least, yeah. So if anyone, if I do the chat, where's the chat? I'm going to test something here. Hello world. Yeah, that didn't work either. Just want to test. There we go. Anyway, um, so bear with me on the new technology. I'm not sure this really works all that well. I'm kind of wishing there was still the option to do the more simple, um, just the hangout recording, but what are you going to do? Um, so with that, you can uh, head over to steampowerpodcast.com. There's links to everything else if you want to follow along, Twitter, uh, Google+, and whatnot. Uh, and emails, if you've got any show ideas or any things you want to talk about or seen talk about, uh, you can hit up the link there. Um, so with that, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, thank you all very, very much for listening. Um, feedback would be great on the new setup. How's it working? Um, and until next time, I guess, stay working.